I'm excited to get on with our series today, but before I do, I am just really burdened and compelled by the Lord for us as a church to enter in a time of prayer over this devastating set of circumstances that happened a week ago in Las Vegas and all these, these wounded people and these deaths, uh, horrible, horrible, horrible thing. A reminder that evil is alive and well in the world today. And it's all the more that we long for the coming of Jesus when he ends all of that. We don't have to worry about those things anymore. Let's enter a time of prayer together. Father, we just uh, come to you with really heavy hearts. Lord, uh, a week ago, just a week ago today, this horrible, horrible evil was perpetrated on so many hundreds of innocent people who were just gathered to have some fun, gathered to listen to some music. And uh, Lord, evil presented itself and took lives and wounded so many people, not, not just physically, but emotionally, maybe forever. Lord, we pray especially for the families of those who were killed in last week's shooting in Las Vegas. God, you, only you know what they really need, and only you know how to give it to them. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'll be with them in a really strong, powerful way, that they might feel your presence and somehow receive peace from you. We pray for those who are recovering from their wounds, the physical wounds. Lord, help them to heal quickly. And then, Lord, the thousands who are recovering from spiritual and emotional wounds from having been subjected to this event. Lord, I just pray that you'll be with those in authority, that they might process all this and do whatever is necessary and help to find some reason for it all. And, Lord, that they might learn something, that they might be able to prevent these things in the future. Lord, we just put it in your hands, trusting you to do what only you can do. We pray that even through this horrible set of circumstances, that some people will come to faith in you and have their eternal question answered, that they'll spend eternity with you. Lord, bless those people and all who are involved and who will continue to be involved. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're in this series, and if you're a guest today, this series kind of follows a book and a movie that bears this name, The Case for Christ, written by an award-winning journalist named Lee Strobel, who was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And the whole thing was a journey for him to debunk Christianity. His wife had come to faith in Jesus. He was an atheist, and his wife previously had been an atheist. And her faith in Christ was really causing problems in their marriage, in their relationship. And so he wanted to rescue his wife, Leslie, from this terrible thing called Christianity. So he set out using all his journalistic skills to debunk Christianity. However, is always the case, or most always the case, throughout this journey, what he discovered was faith in Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we looked at some spiritual sticking points. As people get on a journey for faith in Jesus and God, there are some sticking points that they often run into. And we looked at four last week. One is, I can't believe. So many people will get to the place that say, I just can't believe it's true because of science, because of history, because of whatever. It's just not intellectually true. I just can't accept it. Others will say, I won't believe it. Many times there's moral issues that stand because people feel they'd have to change your lifestyle. And they don't want to change your lifestyle to conform to the things that God speaks about. So they just won't believe it. Others say, I, I just don't know who to believe or what to believe. And still others say, well, I, I do believe, I guess I believe the story, isn't that enough? Now, I don't have time to review what we learned last week, so if you missed it, let me encourage you, you can get a CD at our resource table after the service, or you can go online to our website and listen to it online. 
We're going to continue this case today, and today we're going to look at the evidence for the case of Christ. Now, I, I want you to know right off, the, right off the, from the beginning that this is going to be a rather academic message today. But remember, it's important because what was that first sticking point so many people have? I can't believe. I can't believe because science says it's not true, because history says it's not true. I just can't believe. Well, what we're going to look at today is we're going to feed that particular sticking point today. We're going to address that particular sticking point, and we're going to look at evidences why we can believe, and evidences why so many of us do believe. So if you're on a journey today and you're stuck on that sticking point saying, I just can't believe it because of science, I can't believe it because of history, well, I hope that you will look at and listen to what we're going to say today with a discerning spirit and an open ear and an open heart. Today, if you already are a believer in Christ, I hope that you're going to leave today, just reaffirm that your faith is not built on just something called blind faith, but on real evidence. And I hope too that you'll take away with you some of these evidences so that you can tell the gospel story with more authority and confidence. Now, many of you don't know that Lee, in addition to having written a book and having this movie produced about his life story and his journey, also had a live TV show. It was called Faith Under Fire. And in one of the episodes, he was actually invited to the Playboy Mansion to interview Hugh Hefner. And so as the story goes, they set it all up, and he's interviewing Hugh, and He's going to ask Hugh some very direct questions about spirituality. Now, Hugh Hefner, I guess from the beginning, uh, expressed some minimal belief in God. He said, oh, the beginning of it all, the great unknown. But he did later say that I do not believe in the God of Christianity. So interestingly, though, when Lee Strobel began to bring up the resurrection, Hefner instantly saw the supreme relevance of that. Hefner said this, if one had any real evidence that indeed Jesus did return from the dead, then that is the beginning of the dropping of a series of dominoes that takes us to all kinds of wonderful things. It assures an afterlife and all kinds of things that we hope are true. In other words, Hefner says, wow, if there was really any evidence that that was true, that would set off the dominoes going in a lot of different directions that would give us hope for many of the things that we would really love to believe. Now, in the end, Hugh said, I don't think that Jesus is any more the son of God than we are. And as far as we know, he never came to faith. But I'll tell you what, old Hef got one thing right, and that's this, that if the resurrection is true, if it's true, that changes everything. It changes everything. Paul knew that when he wrote a letter to the Christians at the city of Corinth. In his first letter that we call 1 Corinthians, a New Testament manuscript, chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, the resurrection is it. And that's why Lee, trying to debunk Christianity, laser-focused into debunking the idea of the resurrection. Because if there was no resurrection, then this faith, this Christianity that we embrace and celebrate is futile. And we're still in our sins. Goes on to say, then those who 
also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. We come to funerals, we go, and we, we give comfort to ourselves, and we'll see them again, we'll know them again, we'll be, all be together again. Well, what Paul says is, if there was no resurrection, that's a lie. We're lying to ourselves, that's not true. He goes on to say, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, if only in this life Jesus exists, and never, he, he really doesn't exist in eternity, then we who follow him, we who come to church every Sunday, we who serve in ministries, we who give money to support ministries, we're to be pitied because we've fallen for a hoax, we've fallen for a lie, and we're wasting so much of our life. Paul even admitted that would be true. As you might know, not last week, but the week before, Hugh Hefner died at age 91. And Lee Strobel twittered out after his death, Hugh Hefner dead at 91. I remember sharing the gospel with him. He saw significance of the resurrection, but had never checked the evidence. Now, that's what we're going to do this morning in the time we have remaining. I'm going to have to go quickly. Now, I wish I had had forethought to present and put all this in paper you can get after church. I didn't do that. But still, I want you to relax and just listen to what I'm going to say. I'm going to try to go back and produce that for you later, okay? So I want you to listen. Now, again, this is going to be very academic. I'm going to show you a lot of quotes, a lot of people. But understand, the reason I'm doing that is because one of the, the, the most aggressive resistance to believing in Jesus is intellectual. I can't believe it because science doesn't support it. History doesn't support it. So that's where we're going to kind of center today. Today, we're going to break this case for Christ down into three realities about Jesus. Three realities. The first one is this. Jesus was alive at point A. Jesus was alive. Now, claims that Jesus never existed abound. And they're not just part of our contemporary society and postmodernism and, and the, the, the philosophy of life and culture that we live under. You can go all the way back to the Revolutionary War and the colonies when Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense in the Age of Reason, said, There is no history written at the time Jesus Christ is said to have lived that speaks of the existence of such a person, even such a man. No one ever existed. In the 20th century, an English liberal theologian named Bertrand Russell said this, Historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all, and if he did, we really know nothing about him. He goes on to say, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known in history. I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in those respects. Albert Schweitzer, in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, said this, the Jesus of Nazareth, who came forward as Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth, and died to give his work its final consecration, never existed. I could go on and on and on and on and on. But in reality, the actual historical evidence supports the opposite. Let's go back to antiquity, some of the people who were nearer to the time of Jesus. One is a Roman historian named Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian who lived through the reigns of over half a dozen different Caesars of Rome. He's noted as the greatest Roman historian of antiquity. Well, what did he have to say about it? Writing of Nero's reign, remember Nero, that evil Roman emperor? Tacitus alludes to the death of Jesus and to the existence of Christians in Rome. 
Tacitus says this in his annals. But not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods availed to relieve Nero from the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire of Rome. In other words, everyone was blaming Nero. No matter what he did, no matter how he tried to bribe people, no what excuse, everyone believed that Nero was the one who had set Rome on fire. He goes on to say, Hence... To suppress the rumor, he, Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. So he says these Christian people existed, and Nero put the blame on them. He goes on to say, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procreator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. In other words, he says, he gives credence to the idea that this Christus, now that was kind of the Roman, the Latin writing of the Greek term Christ, or the Hebrew term Messiah. And so he, he gives credence to the fact that he existed, and that there were followers, and Nero had put the blame on them. Another famous Roman historian by the name of Suetonius, he was the official uh, historian under Emperor Hadrian. He said this in his life of Claudius 25.4. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, yet another derivative of the word Christ, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. He said, all these Christians have got to get out of here. So he kicked all the Christians out of Rome. Now, interesting, Scripture supports that historical event. In the New Testament, book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 2, it says this, There he met a Jew named Aquila. There he was Paul, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Emperor Claudius had ordered them, all the Jews, to leave Rome because he thought that the Jews and the Christians, they were all the same group, so he kicked them all out of Rome. So Paul went to see them. Now, Suetonius also says that punishment by Nero, going kind of like Tacitus did, was inflicted on the Christians of class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Now, what could that superstition possibly have been? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, they're not, no, there's so many more historians that we could, we could research and we could talk about who would give credence to the idea that Jesus existed and there was a group of people called Christians who were his followers. Paul Meyer, internationally renowned historian, says this, the total evidence is so overpowering, so absolute, that only the shallowest of intellects would dare to deny Jesus' existence. Stephen Bankars, who's a millennial Christian apologist, some people say, oh, the millennials, they don't believe this anymore. Oh, yes, they do, in increasing numbers. He says this, it has become an internet fad, an online trend to assert that Jesus is a product of some kind of political, social, or economic agenda of the Roman Empire, and that it is all part of some big conspiracy. And if you read the internet, you look it up, you will see story after story after story that supports what he's saying. 
He goes on to say, but is this idea taken seriously by any professors of ancient history, biblical studies, or New Testament studies? He says, do the people who have really done the homework on this, is that what they conclude? And he says this, in fact, listen to this, not a single academic scholar with a PhD in a relevant field of study claims that Jesus did not exist. Some of them include people who are not friends of the gospel. Agnostic New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, you say, no, wait a minute, how can an agnostic be a New Testament scholar or an atheist be a New Testament scholar? Somebody asked me that after the first service, so I thought I'd clear it up in this one. These are very liberal professors of very liberal theological institutions who don't believe in the Bible, who don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but they still study and they teach students the New Testament and what they believe to be the truths of the New Testament and the inaccuracies of the New Testament. So this is no friend of the gospel, but he says this, the claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every ground. He says in another place, he says, Jesus existed and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. Atheistic historian R. Joseph Hoffman says this, only in the age of instant misinformation, in other words, fake news, as we hear so much about today, and net attack, is this kind of lunacy possible? Only in the atheist universe, where the major premise, religion is a lie, so the study of religion is the study of lies, infest everything, is this kind of lunacy even possible? Finally, Michael Grant, and I could go on and on and on and on and on with these. Queen's University of Belfast. If we apply the New Testament as we should, the same sort of criteria as we should apply to other ancient writings containing historical material, we can no more reject Jesus' existence than we could reject the existence of a mass of pagan personages whose reality as historical figures is never questioned. In other words, they write these in big words and big sentences. I'm going to break it down to, to Pete Tokar language. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying, if we use the same criteria by which we accept the historical existence of Julius Caesar, of Socrates, of Plato, of all these other historical, if we use that same criteria, and we use the same criteria to, to judge whether or not Jesus existed, you've got to conclude that, yes, Jesus existed just as much as Julius Caesar did, just as much as Plato did, just as much as Socrates, just as much as any other historical figure. Jesus existed. Amen. So Jesus was alive. Jesus did, in fact, exist. He was alive at point A. The second reality about Jesus is this. Jesus was dead at point B, that Jesus died. There's a theory out there about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's called different things. I refer to it, as many others have, as the swoon theory. Now, the swoon theory holds this. That when Jesus was taken down from the cross, he wasn't dead. He wasn't really dead. He was almost, only almost dead. Remember the Princess Bride thing, you know? Never mind. But anyhow. <laughs> and that when they put Jesus in the tomb, he had the appearance of someone who was dead. But in 
the, the dampness and in, in the coolness of the tomb, he actually was self-resuscitated and he came back to life. And that's how he came out of the tomb. He came back to life. He wasn't really dead. But let me remind you of what Jesus had experienced during those two days that we call the Passion Days. First of all, remember that he was arrested in the garden. He was taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they blindfolded him and they beat him all night long. It says they even pulled out the hair of his beard. And they slapped them and they punched him. Now, how many would say tonight, if someone were to do that to you, that that might leave you emotionally and physically kind of in a vulnerable place, huh? If they beat you all night long. So that's where it started. Then they took Jesus to Pilate. Pilate found no fault in him, remember. But the people kept crying for his death. And so Pilate sent him away to be scourged. Now, remember, history records that scourging was not just whipping. Scourging was called the halfway death. It brought a person almost to the point of death. Jesus was not only beaten, he was scourged. Pilate hoped that when he brought back Jesus, who who, who had been so disfigured and so marred that the people would have compassion on him and, and let him go, but they didn't, as we know. So ultimately, Jesus carried his cross, and even now, he fell under the weight of the cross because he was already so physically depleted, and they crucified him. Now, crucifixion was the most heinous form of capital punishment ever devised by humanity. It was horrible. It was a terrible way to die. So they nailed Jesus to the cross. Now, because it was the Sabbath, And they had to get Jesus down off the cross and the others because they had to get him in in the grave off the cross before the Sabbath came. They came to Jesus, they were going to break the legs. Why? Because crucifixion was death by asphyxiation. They would break the legs so the person hanging on the cross could no longer breathe. But they came to Jesus and they didn't break the legs because he was already dead. But just to make sure, a Roman soldier took a spear and pierced him into the heart with the spear. And out came blood and water. Now, as you recall, this was one of the things Lee Strobel was hanging his hat on to debunk Christianity, the swoon theory, the fact that Jesus wasn't really dead. So he went to interview a medical doctor named Dr. Alexander uh, Metherol. Let me show you the clip. The swoon theory, what do you say? It's a bunch of rubbish. James Tabor, agnostic New Testament scholar, said this, I think we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, he was truly what? He was dead. Gerd Lundemann, atheist New Testament scholar, said, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. In other words, even with these who are not friends of the gospel, who are not friends of the Bible... They say Romans knew how to kill people. When Romans killed people, they were D-E-A-D, dead. No question about it. So Jesus was dead at point B. Now, the final reality about Jesus is this. Jesus was alive again at point C. He was alive again. There are two strands of evidence that Jesus came back to life. The first strand of evidence is that his tomb was empty. 
Remember, after the crucifixion, as recorded in John chapter 19, beginning verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man who was secretly a follower of Jesus Christ, went to Pontius Pilate to get the body of Jesus so that he could bury the body of Jesus. By the way, the scripture says he had a co-conspirator in this, a guy named Nicodemus. Remember that name? A ruler of, of the religious elite that met with Jesus at night because he was afraid also of being associated with Jesus. So these two who became believers in Jesus, who were religious leaders in Israel, took the body and they anointed, did everything that was nece- necessary. They prepared the body for the Jewish burial process, and they put Jesus in a brand new tomb that no other human being had ever been in. Now, remember also that the chief priests after the death of Jesus remembered that Jesus had prophesied that he would come back to life after three days. So they went to Pilate and said, let's make this tomb secure. Let's do what we need to do so that this deceiver Uh, what he said doesn't come to fruition because somebody takes and steals his body. So Pilate says, go make the tomb as secure as you can. And so they sealed the tomb with the Roman seal and they posted a Roman guard around the seal. Yet, the tomb was found empty on that first Easter morning. It was empty. Now, how do we know that the tomb was empty. How do we know that's all not just some big fable, some myth? How do we know? Well, there's several things that we we can look to. One is called the Jerusalem factor. Now, what's the Jerusalem factor? That's this, as written by uh, scholar William Lane Craig. Now, in that, Jesus' tomb, where he died in Jerusalem, was known to Christians, believers, and non-believers alike, at this time there were many more non-believers than there were believers, they knew where Jesus was buried. And so therefore, if Jesus' disciples were subsequently to create this myth about the resurrection, they certainly wouldn't have started in Jerusalem where it could have been easily debunked by people going to the tomb, opening the tomb up and saying, there he is. So they would have never started that in Jerusalem. Another factor is the criterion of embarrassment. Now, ladies, hang with me. Okay, I'm I'm in your corner. But we're going back in culture, hundreds and hundreds of years. Women were the first ones to discover the empty tomb, right? Remember the story. Now, in that culture, the testimony of women was not considered reliable. They were not allowed to testify in a court of law. So, If the gospel writers were going to make this whole thing up about the empty tomb, they certainly would not have admitted that women were the first ones to discover. They would have done everything they could to hide that fact. That would have been an embarrassment. That would have been something that detracted from their cause. However, the New Testament writers and the disciples wanted to be absolutely accurate in the historical record of what actually occurred. So even at the expense of causing their own embarrassment and potentially hurt their cause, they recorded the events as it actually happened. They would have never done that if they were making this up. Then there's the enemy attestation element of all this. Say, what's that? Even the enemies of Jesus admitted that the tomb was 
empty. Even they admitted it. Remember Matthew 28. It says, well, the women were, were going back to tell the disciples. The guards who had been posted at the tomb went to see the chief priests. They ran to the chief priests. And what did they tell them? They told them the story about the resurrection. They told them how they were paralyzed and the stone, there was an earthquake and the stone was rolled away and they couldn't move and, and how Jesus had come out of that grave. And, and so what they did is they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large amount of money and they said, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If this report gets out to the governor, we will satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. Now, what was he saying? He was saying to these Roman soldiers, Listen, here's what you're going to do. We're going to pay you money, and you say that the disciples stole that body. That's why the body's not in the tomb. And they said, if, if it gets back to Pilate, we'll cover for you. See, because if it got back to Pilate, those soldiers were dead. Because if they really had fallen asleep at their post, it was the Roman military punishment to kill anybody who fell asleep at their post. They were dead men. That's why they went to the chief priest and not to their commanding officer. And so that's exactly what happened. It says, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews through this very day. Other historians repeated that same story over and over again. But why would they say someone stole the body if it was still in the tomb? It makes no sense. Why would they say that? Even the enemies of Jesus. I mean, the Romans wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish Religious leaders wanted Jesus to stay dead, and the disciples would have had no opportunity and no means to steal the body. This was a Roman guard. This was not just some, some ho hokey rent-a-cop organization. This, this was Roman guards. They would have guarded that tomb. Those disciples could have never overpowered them. The real question is, how did the tomb get empty, huh? That's a different story for a different time. Now, the second reason, strand of evidence, that Jesus came back to life was that he appeared to a lot of people. Jesus had many appearances after he came back. He appeared to Peter and the ten of the disciples, along with Mary and, and, and Mary Magdalene and Mary and, and other of the women. 500 at one time saw the resurrected Jesus. And Scripture goes on to say that many of these people were still alive at the writing of the Gospels and the writing of Paul's letter. Why is that so important? Because there were still so many eyewitnesses alive that if it were not true, they would have immediately debunked it. They would have said, that's not true, that's a lie. I lived, I was there, I'm an eyewitness, none of that is true. But they didn't do that. They couldn't do that. James and the other apostles, remember James was Jesus' half-brother. He did not believe that his half-brother was the Messiah. But he came to faith and became the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Saul of Tarsus would later be called Paul. He met the risen Jesus. He was going to Damascus to continue to imprison, to kill, and, and to persecute believers of Jesus Christ. And he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Craig says this. He says, there's every reason to conclude that the Gospels have fairly and accurately reported the essential elements of Jesus' teaching, life, death, and resurrection. They're early enough. They're rooted into the right streams that go back to Jesus and the original people. 
There's continuity, there's proximity, there's verification of certain distinct points with archaeology and other documents, and then there's the inner logic that nothing else makes sense. See? What did Paul say? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. But I'm here to tell you it's not futile because Christ's resurrection eclipses all other alternative explanations. Also, the bulk of historical evidence supports Jesus' resurrection. Numerous eyewitnesses gave testimonies of Jesus' resurrection. And finally, if none of those count, the radical change in Jesus' disciples' disposition after the resurrection support the fact that Jesus came back to life. Of the 10 remaining apostles, and then if you throw or if you throw out the 11 remaining, because Judas had killed himself, and if you throw Paul in there later on to become the 12th after Matthias, all but one of them were martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ in heinous and terrible, painful ways they were martyred. They were burned. They were boiled alive. They were flayed. They were pierced with arrows like a target. They had used them for target practice. Not one of them ever recounted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chuck Colson, later on, when he was looking back at the Watergate experience, told how, how they had come up with this cover-up plan and everything, and immediately it began to fall apart because this guy'd crack, and that guy'd crack, and that guy'd crack under interrogation. Well, this wasn't under interrogation. This was under martyrdom, and none of them denied the fact. So what does Paul conclude, 1 Corinthians 15, 20? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus said it this way in John 5, 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. All the evidence supports it. Now, we're out of time, man. I hate the clock. I really do. You're here today, and you came in with that sticking point, I can't believe, because science says it's not true, because history says it. I hope today you have discovered that that's not true. It's simply not true. And even people who are not friends of real, sincere Christianity in the Bible have to admit that it's not true. So today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, Jesus is here. He brought you here to give you forgiveness of your sins and to give you eternal life. Don't leave the campus in that condition. If you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, come and see me. Come and see one of the pastors in these gray shirts. At least pick up one of these blue books at our welcome center and, and our, one of our literature racks that says, you can be sure. This little booklet, you can read this afternoon in no time. We'll walk you through what Scripture has to say about the forgiveness of sin, about Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross for us, and about how you can know that you know that you know that when you die, heaven will be your home. And it's not built on hocus-pocus. It's not built on blind faith. We who believe, believe, because in our hearts the Holy Spirit has said it's true 
but also the evidence outweighs any other alternative explanation. Now, next week, we're going to come back. Next week is a really emotionally soul-searching, spiritually challenging message for those who have not yet come to faith in Jesus and for those who have. We're we're, going to get up close and personal, but it's going to be a good thing, okay? Don't be afraid of it. Come back and we'll, we'll learn more as we continue this case for Christ. moment we're going to leave as we do, please be, be faithful to your tithes and offerings. But right now, having rejoiced and celebrated with what we've learned today, let's stand and let's praise the Lord one more time.